This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for February 18th, 2019. In this show, I talk to a novelist about how he recreated the period after World War I and whether we can ever really understand what people felt a century ago. Is the past really a different country? Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, What matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. In a few minutes, we'll have this. As a whole group of people, they would march down together and join the army, often into the same company in the same part of the army, be sent to the same battle, and very often all die together. But what really fascinates me is, why do you think that happened? Why were people so enthusiastic? There's, uh, and I I don't know if I'm using this phrase correctly, but I think it's a mix of uh, the carrot and the stick. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that there's the the carrot, the reward of being able to show valor for your country and uh, to make your bones in the military and and prove yourself. That's in a few minutes. But first, I want to continue making these podcasts, getting interesting guests, doing research, and that obviously takes time. So to make that possible, I've created a Patreon page. So if you have a few bucks to spare, please consider signing up as a supporter. There's details on the webpage and at the end of this podcast. I've talked about the Baltic Republics and Ukraine before on this podcast, and their governments, and to a large extent their people, are anxious to make alliances with the West, join NATO, join the EU. It's notable that of the former Eastern Bloc countries, the Baltic states that were once part of the Soviet Union, occupied by the Soviet Union, they would say, they have been the most anxious to integrate with the West, joining NATO, joining the EU, adopting the euro currency as soon as they were permitted to do so. You don't really have to be a cynic to realise that they were doing this not so much out of love of the West as out of fear of the East. Joining NATO allowed them to access its common defence commitment. That means that an attack on one is an attack on all, to which all must respond. In short, that means that any invasion by Russia of the Baltic states is deterred by the knowledge that Russia would be also attacking nuclear-armed states such as the US and the UK. That's also a good explanation why Russia wanted to contrive to occupy some of the territory of the former Soviet states of Georgia, Ukraine, Moldova and Armenia. While those countries are not in control of all of their own territory, they're not able to join NATO. There is one other country in that region that's gone down a different path. Belarus is situated between Poland and Russia. It has a population just under 10 million people, and it's about the same size as Great Britain or the state of Minnesota. They have their own language, Belarusian, which is closely related to Polish, but it's written with the Cyrillic alphabet, much like Russian. However, that language is very much in a minority. The leadership and elite all speak Russian, as do most of the people in the cities, although speaking Belarusian has become somewhat fashionable among an urban intelligentsia. 
Belarus certainly doesn't have the same ambitions towards the West as some of its neighbours. It didn't even really want to leave after the fall of the Soviet Union. It only declared independence in 1994, long after the show was over, and the country has been ruled by the former Soviet strongman Alexander Lukashenko ever since. He's a dictator who doesn't even attempt to make pretenses of democracy. All opposition groups are ruthlessly eliminated. And Lukashenko is on particularly friendly terms with Vladimir Putin, the only slightly less undemocratic Russian president. And there are several bilateral agreements. For example, citizens can travel between the two countries with only state identity cards. They don't need passports. And last week, Lukashenko and Putin met in a high-profile summit and spoke openly about something that has been the subject of some speculation for quite a while, that Belarus would join Russia, which effectively means that Belarus would become part of Russia. This subject did not come up by coincidence. My reading is that this is a step in preparing public opinion in both countries for this to actually happen, although that process might last a couple of years. It's clear the advantage for Putin. It adds to his empire, although not by that much, maybe increases Russia's population by about 7%. Although Belarus is a major food exporter to Russia, particularly since tit-for-tat sanctions on EU produce. But what's in it for Lukashenko? You might remember that I mentioned the dictator trap to Max Suchkov in podcast number 98. Dictators don't tend to have long, happy retirements. They tend to leave office for the grave or for a prison cell or perhaps a firing squad. Lukashenko is a couple of years younger than Putin and is a product of the same Soviet system. One solution for Putin might be to install his old Soviet comrade in his place. That would leave Putin free to retire and Lukashenko to harvest the billions as Putin had done before him, with each owing the other enough to persuade them to coexist. Watch this space. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On the line now, I have Adam DeColibus. He is a historical novelist. His first novel is just about now being published by Third Line Publishing. It's called Caravan. Uh, Adam, where and when is it set? Well, thanks a lot, William, for having me on. Uh, It is set in... In the 1920s in London, England, and uh, it takes place in London and it takes place in the Saharan Desert. I know that you're a fan of that period and the the lead up to it. And I was reading about recently the Versailles Treaty, which was being negotiated exactly a 100 years ago. As we're speaking, uh, it was finalized, I think, in June 1919, and that marked the end of World War One. And World War One is a period that fascinates me, and I'm, that's one of the reasons why I'm really excited to talk to you. And one thing that I think is 
maybe poorly understood is not so much the history and everybody learns about in history in school about uh, the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand and this caused Austria to go to war with Serbia and Germany to go to war with someone else and everybody gets into all these complicated relationships. But what I'm interested more in is the social history and why people were doing that. Can you tell me, do you think that people then thought the way that people think now or do those things move on and do we ever have access to the way that people thought in the past? I think that people definitely saw the war much differently than they do now because, well, one, they'd never seen a war like the First World War before. Just the Mm -hmm. sheer uh, uh, scale and size of the war was completely unprecedented. We're talking about uh, millions of men on both sides and and they're uh, dying in numbers that have never been seen before. Um, so I would definitely say uh, that their perspective on the war w- would be much different than ours. Um, there were definitely the ideas of valor and standing up in the midst of gunfire and honor and all these sorts of things, um, in which they still hold true today. I think that they're a very important part of human nature. But I think that they were uh, much more prized in that era because warfare was much more different. It was much more... I wouldn't say civilized, but it was a lot more like a uh, a really intense uh, sport, if you want to put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the introduction, well, just think about this: at the beginning of the First World War, they were still using cavalry. Yeah, um, men were still uh, dressed colorfully. Uh, they were still using gloves, white white gloves, and all that stuff. Camouflage uh, was a result of the First World War, um, and. Yeah, I would say it definitely got changed, but their perspective was different. The one thing that really fascinates me is, and in, it was particularly in the British Army, there were what was called pals brigades. So people who all maybe played together in the same football club or all worked together in the same workplace. When war broke out, as a whole group of people, they would march down together and join the army, they'd join up all together, often into the same company in the same part of the army, be sent to the same battle and very often all die together. But what really fascinates me is the joy and the enthusiasm that people joined up with. That fizzled out very fast. But why do you think that happened? Why were people so enthusiastic? I'd say there's two reasons. Uh, there's uh, – and I don't know if I'm using this phrase correctly, but I think it's a mix of uh, the carrot and the stick. Um, mm-hmm. I think that there's the, the carrot, the reward of being able to show valor for your country and uh, to make your bones in the military and, and prove yourself. I could I can totally see seeing that play a large effect. But they also very much had the stick. They very much had uh, the force, which was if you didn't, um, you were almost certainly going to be shamed publicly. If you were a – uh, an able-bodied man just walking the street and you weren't in uniform, um, you were going to be shamed publicly. And that's so they had both the uh, reward and they had both the um, the punishment, if you want to call it that, for uh, not joining or joining. There was um, a certain group of uh, women in England who took it upon themselves to give a white feather to anybody, any able-bodied male walking around not in uniform. In other words, to mark out their cowardice. And... Oh, the only thing I can relate it to in our current world is the, uh, and I've been listening to Caliphate. I don't know if you've heard of this um, podcast from, I think from the New York Times, uh, interviewing former members uh, of the 
Islamic State, people who went from the West, or one particular fighter who went from the West to fight for the Islamic State. And it sounds like there's almost a similar principle there that somebody feels quite a, maybe a meaningless person, but they can give meaning to their life if they go off and very likely die. But that's okay, that their life, maybe they don't value all that highly compared to the community. Do you think maybe the 20th century, that, that sounds really bizarre to us, but do you think maybe the 20th century became so individualistic that we could never even understand that? I don't know. I think I think that we could definitely understand that. Uh, well, and I think that just that plays into a part of our human nature. If we just, uh, at least I like to, as a as a writer, I like to imagine myself in certain situations in different points in history, just to play around with creative ideas and that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. I definitely think that you can understand what that would be like, uh, sort of feeling the pressure, not only to uh, to serve and and fight for your country, but also to avoid avoid shame for sure you obviously wrote a novel that's uh, set in that period just after world war one what did you want to tell people about that why how did you want to make them feel what people were feeling then well uh the reason why i chose just after the first war and first world war instead of during uh even though that would have been pretty exciting to write about as well is because i've i was really fascinated to write about characters and and people who who witnessed the effect of a great war, who witnessed the effect of something that had uh, the size of something that they'd never seen before as as humans. Mm-hmm. And in the story, I, I it's not it's not over. It's definitely sort of in the background, but you get to see the effects of the war on certain people. The main character, who <laughs> not. Uh, um, coincidentally is also named William. Mm-hmm. Um, the the main character, he has a past with the war and I wanted to capture the uh, intricacies and the sort of caveats of the war where, for instance, you'll meet people who uh, were sort of gung-ho to go to war and those who maybe didn't have a choice because they were pressured into it. Um, others who saw the valor and, and sort of the um, propagandized valor in it and others who got to see the very ugly side where civilians got killed and, and that sort of thing. So I wanted to capture that war uh, because, one, it was the first of its kind that was really truly mechanized. It was almost industrial on scale, mm-hmm. as well as um, it brought up a lot of new interesting subjects. Uh, I believe – and I'm not too sure about this, but I believe um, a lot of the – Subjects in the Geneva Convention were sort of born out of this. Uh, uh, how to treat prisoners and POWs. If I'm mm-hmm. not, if I'm not wrong. That being said, uh, the reason why I wanted to choose it is because I wanted to capture that effect, the largeness of it. Um, just it having touched everybody in that era. And it it was really an extraordinary period in history. And one of the reasons why I like it. One thing was that it was quite a long time. It was 45 years since Europe had had a major war before then. And that's perhaps tells us one reason why people were enthusiastic about it, because nobody who remembered the 1870 war was really alive then, certainly wasn't making any decisions and wasn't likely to be going into battle. And that might have added to people's naivety about uh, what war could do. But certainly the change in technology was enormous. And there were inventions such as the machine gun, the tank, poison gas that were used in World War One that had never been used in any war 
before then. Do you think maybe that was humanity losing its innocence to a degree? To to a degree, for sure. Um, I think it's an interesting topic to think about because you get to see what happens when uh, incredible innovation meets war. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you definitely get to see that because, uh, for instance, if you take the idea of the tank, it wasn't just they didn't think, OK, let's come up with this uh, vehicle that can go over the trenches and uh, break through the wire and go over the landmines. That wasn't their original idea. They they got the idea from their surroundings. They got it from a tractor mm-hmm. in the same way in the same way that it has treads and all that. And uh, you can sort of see the thought process. It's it's a war where you can definitely see where they got the ideas from. Um and and you can definitely see it losing its innocence because even the barbed wire uh, before it was used to uh, uh, on farms and for cattle and that sort of thing, and then now it's used to uh, snare men where you can gun them down. It's definitely the loss of innocence. But I think that in that in that loss of innocence, as a society, as as a race, we learned a lot about what is worth dying for, and we learned uh, a lot about what it, what is what man is capable of. Mm-hmm. Any book, even if it's historical, is obviously talking to us now in the current age. What does your book have to say about the situation we find ourselves in now in the 21st century? Um, I think one thing that it can still carry over, but despite it um, being set in a period so long ago, is that even though there may be grand, uh, not grand, but large cultural uh, differences between people uh, and many years can still uh, past people essentially at their core we're all, we're all still the same um we all still have the same core values over cultures and over the whole globe uh so one lesson that still carries today that is is uh presented in the book is just to to follow your heart and find the freedom in your life and i think that that can carry true in in any era of the book it's sort of a timeless lesson that uh, i think still holds very true today um even more so today and tell me about what inspired you uh, in terms of literature. Obviously, your interest in that period of history, uh, but in terms of literature, where what where are you coming from? The idea for the for the book itself and the main themes, um, and even just the basic setting of it being in the desert, came as a result of me uh, reading *The Alchemist* by Paulo Coelho. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just dis- I discovered that book um, at a pretty young age, and. When I read it, I, I felt enchanted, and it was one of the books uh, that, that really pushed me into taking writing seriously because it, it didn't only just grab my attention. It didn't only just uh, take me to a different place uh, mentally, but when I put the book down, the effect uh, that had that sort of enchantment, that enrichment still still carried – um, so it was an inspiration because of the effect it had on me. I, I thought, Hey, listen, if I can give that to somebody else, um, and I can make a life out of it, uh, then that's what I'm going to do. Um, but in, in literary terms, the, the theme of following your heart, uh, listening to your, to your life's purpose, um, that definitely that definitely weaved its way into my own into my own work. And your book is called Caravan. That word took on new meaning maybe around the midterm elections. Did you choose that title before or after uh, before or after that came into the news? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I came up with that title, I would say, pretty early into the stage of writing the book because I just thought I would make a title that's that captures what happens in the book, uh, <laughs> which which centers around the caravan traveling across the Sahara. Um, but uh, with everything happening down south, no, I, I didn't uh, I didn't anticipate that. Adam DeColibus, author of Caravan, published by Third Line Publishing. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you so much, William. I've had a great time. Never miss a show. Follow at Challenging O on Twitter and like Challenging Opinions on Facebook for updates on each show's contents. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at Challenging O on Twitter, and follow Adam DeColibus at Adam underscore DeColibus. And get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or topic for a future show. And thanks to everyone who's signed up as a patron on Patreon so far. I really appreciate that. It means that I can devote more time to research and finding interesting guests. And if you could do the same as them and donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, you'll find the link on the website. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming up next Monday, that's February 25th, I'll be talking to the reporter and columnist Scott Moorfield about the difference between populism and conservatism. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. The assistant producer is Nick Albertson. Thank you for listening. Listening.